Hey, everybody. My name is Frank McKinney. No, I'm not going to sing for you playing an instrument. I just finished the most enlightening podcast I've been on in years. Go big to give big. I hope you were aspired, not inspired or motivated, but aspired to do just that. Go bigger so you can give bigger. Welcome to the Go Big to Get Big podcast, where we are challenging six-figure earners to become seven-figure givers. My name is Randy Mullen, and each week, my co-host Steve Arneson and I are interviewing successful entrepreneurs, professional athletes, philanthropists, and other high-performing humans that are inspiring us with their stories. We go deep into uncovering how they have become successful and why generosity is an impact they want to leave on this world. Our mission is to have you leave this podcast wanting to go bigger with your dreams and goals so that you can give bigger with your profits. Let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. Before we get started today, though, this is a quick reminder that we are launching our Go Big to Give Big membership. If you are looking to get around people that are more excited about talking about the impact they are making in this world more than the cars they are buying, then you're going to want to go check out GoBigToGiveBig.com to get more information and join the most philanthropic group of entrepreneurs out there. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the show. And I'm so fired up for today's guest, Frank McKinney. Thanks so much for coming on, Frank. Listen, you know, you and I had a little prelim conversation and, uh, you know, I've done a million of these with my eight, eight books out, but I rarely get to focus on what is near and dear to my heart, which is the backside of the name of this program. Go big to give big. And we're going to talk about giving big more than we're going to talk about going big. Is this Absolutely. more important? Absolutely. And it was uh, so refreshing to speak to you when we spoke because I could talk business all day with everybody, but I can't speak the giving initiative or making impact with everybody all day. And I feel like you and I could have just sat there for hours and hours and hours talking about the impact that we feel called to make in this world. And so before we get too deep into there, I want to just share a tiny bit of your story because I think the come up story is very powerful. Even sharing some of the stuff of how you you know had nothing, but you were still giving even as a as a, a entrepreneur learning the space or a young boy coming up in this world. So why don't you share just a quick synopsis of how you got from you know basically being homeless to to selling some of the most expensive real estate in the world, and then we'll move into philanthropy. Yeah, the short story is I'm I'm just a poor good country boy from Indiana. I'm the oldest of six. I, I grew up in a small town in Indiana called Carmel, Indiana. My father was a banker. My mother was a school teacher. I went to four high schools in four years, and it wasn't because my father was in the military, right? He was a banker. So I uh, I was asked to leave three high schools before I graduated from the fourth with a 1.8 GPA. Prior to graduating, I graduated at 17. Prior to graduating, I was in juvenile detention seven times. So you're sentenced to juvenile detention before you go to prison. I stopped and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm in kindergarten now these seven times, right? I'm, I'm, I'm arrested and put in juvenile detention. If I don't turn things around, I'm going to go to a place where I really don't want to go, which is, a, you know, a jail or something. So, you know, I, I'm going to use this little prop here, which is my cell phone. I'm going to imagine, let's imagine it's an eraser. I turned around to the chalkboard of life. And I erased what was. I killed the person I was born to be to become the person I wanted to be. I left Indiana with a with a $50 bill and a one-way plane ticket when I was 18 because there was no college, even community college, that would take a 1.8 GPA. And so I landed in Palm Beach. Palm Beach, man. You're younger, but there was a show on television called Lifestyles of Rich and Famous. 
for you young people, MTV Cribs, the voyeuristic look inside the lifestyles written famous. Randy, I wanted it, but how? No education, no network, no money, no friends, no place to live. I don't believe in in the uh, welfare mentality. I might believe in the welfare system, but the mentality and the system are two different things. So I got a job digging sand traps on a golf course, earning 180 bucks a week. I earned the nickname the White Haitian, uh, <laughs> not because of where I was from, but because of my work ethic. I was really proud to have a job earning that 180 bucks a week. I lived with three other maintenance workers. But you know what? That impression of seeing people play golf all day and never seeming to go to work. I'm not into golf, but I was certainly into that lifestyle. Like, how do you get to play golf all day and never seem to work? I saw the same faces all the time. I was moved to the tennis court as a maintenance worker. People playing golf from nine to one were playing tennis from three to five. Same face. <laughs> how in the world? I became a tennis instructor, a tennis pro. So I went from four bucks an hour to $50 an hour. I realized that the people that were paying me $50 an hour, I was making a hundred grand a year as a 21 year old. I bought a Ferrari. I don't say that to impress you. I say that yeah. to impress upon you that I was able to turn my life around and make something out of this kind of least likely to succeed yearbook, uh, you know, soundbite. The people I teach in tennis to Randy, they would drive up into their lesson in a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, a Mercedes. They'd have a multi-million dollar mansion, a yacht, you know, the beautiful Beyonce lookalike wife or Richard Gere husband and the two kids and the dog. Man, I wanted that. I'm young. I'm impressionable. I'm materialistic. I'm consumeristic. The story, I earned my PhD in entrepreneurship and my master's in real estate teaching those people for, they'd pay me for an hour. I'd tire them out after 45 minutes so they couldn't finish their tennis lesson. And I'd sit them down and I'd ask them, Randy, how did you get here? And over a two-year span, the advice I got was they were nine to fivers, you know, doctors, lawyers, what have you. But it was the discretionary income they had left over after paying taxes and bills that they invested in real estate. And so I took their advice, and I'm going to date myself. You were even born probably in 1987. I brought my, yeah. I bought my 1986. I bought my first flip. Flip was a, a term used in gymnastics. It wasn't a term used in real estate. And I sold that thing. It was a crack house, a really rough part of town that I bought, renovated, and sold for a $7,000 profit. For the first five years of my career, my real estate career, I didn't do a house worth more than $100,000. I did a bunch of first-time homebuyer houses, te teaching people how they could own for less than rent. I did hundreds of them. My margins went from seven grand to 25 grand a house. I got really good at the craft of real estate, not the business. I'll explain that later, but the craft of real estate. I then jumped from a $100,000 crack house flip to a $2.2 million oceanfront renovation. Once I moved to the oceanfront, not physically, but my business, yeah. we have done 44 direct oceanfront spec houses on spec, all on spec. For those of you who don't know, there's no buyer in mind. Like the field of dreams, you build it and you hope they'll come. Of those 44 houses, the average selling price was $14.4 million. Average days on the market was 56 and a half. And so, man, that's been the ride. We went from a $50,000 crack house in 86, 87 to the most expensive house I did was a $50 million uh, spec house. It had 22 bedrooms, a 24 car garage, like uh, 30 bathrooms. So that's kind of the real estate backstory, but that's not why we're here today. No, but I just got to give you kudos where kudos do. Like, I don't think people actually understand what a spec house means until you're in real estate and you're building spec houses and you're in that space. Like it's scary. You don't have a contract saying, Hey, if you build this, you're going to get paid. It's like, I'm going to build this and trust that, you know, there's somebody on the other end for this. So 
kudos to you, dude, because that is so uh, taking risk to a whole new level, trusting yourself that what you're building is the exact product at the right time. One of the, I have, I have many, many mantras. One of, the, one of them is exercise your risk tolerance like a muscle. I got a pretty small muscle here, but I got a real big risk tolerance muscle. Exercise that risk tolerance like a muscle. Eventually, it will become stronger and able to withstand greater pressure. I don't care if you're the, the president of the Tupperware Club or you're specking $50 million houses. To live a fulfilling life, be it from the philanthropo-capitalistic side or the entrepreneurial side, you have to embrace and take risk. I'm afraid every day of my life, Randy, but I don't let the fear stop me. Absolutely. But you just said the word that's going to turn this entire podcast right now. You said when you step into being a philanthropo-capitalist, what does that mean? Because I saw that on your website and I was like, I don't know, but I want to be in this guy's life if he's using words like that, because that sums up this podcast, my network, everyone in my circle easily could be defined as a philanthropo-capitalist. And I want you to describe that and where it came from and how you found out to be that you are one of these humans. You know, going back to that lack of formal education and realizing, and I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to thump on the Bible or pound on the pulpit, but I'm going to reference a passage from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 48. If you're not in the Bible, just think of this as a great life mantra. Okay, forget the Bible part. Don't tune me out right now. To whom much is entrusted, much is required. To whom much is given, much is expected. For, for a guy who was in juvenile seven times and went, went to four high school schools in four years and yet was building $50 million spec houses, the good, the good Lord had done something in my professional life. He, he helped me understand my professional highest calling. Well, I was at a real low point in the early 2000s, Randy. I was ready to kind of jump off a bridge. I was at the, a high point in my professional life, but my, I lost all the heart in my soul or all the soul in my heart. I, I, I went to my mentor and I said, why do I feel, I don't curse when I say one bad word, why do I feel like shit? I should be on top of the world. I just sold the most expensive spec house in the history of Palm Beach County. And you're ready to jump off a bridge. He said, Frank, you found your professional highest calling. This gift God gave you to do these spec houses. I mean, you're the best, one of the best in the world at it. Where's your spiritual highest calling? I, I don't know, even know what that means. So I, to try to put some heart back in my soul and to keep me from leaping off a bridge, I started volunteering at a soup kitchen one night a week for one hour a week. And I started to understand that passage. I started to apply that passage. I then, as I evolved and became more enlightened, I realized that charity exacerbates poverty. So here's the direct answer to your direct question. Charity exacerbates poverty. It does nothing to solve the problem. For those of you who are my age, you'll remember back in the 80s, they talked about Ethiopia and all the, you know, all the fundraisers. for Ethiopia hasn't changed because it's been a massive charitable effort. It's taking the best of philanthropy Okay. The best of philanthropy is the heart and getting rid of the worst, which is charity. It's taking the best of capitalism, which is money, and getting rid of the worst, which is greed. You marry philanthrocapitalism together and you can solve poverty. Now, that's not some platitude. We have been in Haiti for 21 years building self sustaining villages. I and my board of directors and our donors have built 31 self-sustaining villages that have now provided a self-sufficient existence for over 14,000 children, another prop, that were eating dirt patties flavored with bouillon and lemon juice. 
That's the definition of philanthropic capitalism, taking the best of philanthropy, the best of capitalism, marrying the two, realizing that it's a business, Randy, but the, the capital is human capital. It's not financial capital. And it's not about hugging on orphans or feeling better about myself. This is still a business. I, we've coined the phrase not only philanthropic capitalism, but you know what an ROI is. We know what a return on investment is. What's, what's your ROD, your return on donation? How far can I stretch my donor's dollar? Well, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm going to plug my books while I'm here. You buy one of my eight books, it's 100 meals in one of our orphanages. I can build a whole house in Haiti, a concrete house for a family of eight for $5,000. That's an ROD. That's being a responsible steward for the blessings God's given you. And that is the epitome of the definition of philanthropic capitalism. Dude, I can only applaud what you just said in such a way that it's, um, there's so many people that use the word giving to market themselves, brand themselves and make themselves sound better. And that's part of the space that we're in of, of where, where I hang out. And I know that space. What you're truly doing is just the work. It is just being a good steward of the message that you were given to go deliver. And I am fascinated by it. And I want to dive in, A, why Haiti? But how did you start coming up with this principle that you wanted to not just fund the project, but eradicate the problems that are there and start creating these self-sustaining villages? I know, I'm not a political person. I have this thing on my forehead that says unelectable. So I would never run <laughs> wrong. But a tattoo, let's say. But I, I just saw how like the, the programs revolving around welfare and entitlements just really, really don't work. Yeah. I mean, it creates a mentality. I love the programs. I hate the mentality it creates. Yeah. So, so over in Haiti, when we built a village, and let's say you're the village elder, you're the mayor, you're the head of the, you know, the, the little communal effort that we're putting together, you know going in, we're not coming back to help you once we build you this village. Because we've provided all the self-sustaining elements I'm going to name them very quickly. A typical village has 50 houses. It has a community center. Inside the community center is a school, a church, a clinic, renewable food, some clean drinking water, and some form of free enterprise that's sprinkled over the top of the village so it can be self-sustaining. Yeah. That way, I do what we do best. We don't provide desks in the school. We don't provide teachers. We provide the infrastructure. We build these self-sustaining villages. And I'm a project-specific person, right? I mean, when I was younger, I probably had ADHD. I want to get in, get out, and move to the next one. And so we are 31 for 31. We have never had someone, a village, fail or had them come back for more money. Matter of fact, we had the Clinton Foundation, the almighty Clinton Foundation, call us about five years ago, six years ago, and ask, how are we able to build self-sustaining villages? All those, those elements I just referenced, Randy, 50 houses, community school. Community center, school, church, clinic, renewable food, clean drinking water, and free enterprise for about $350,000. One, 50 houses inside that 350 grand. Wow. So, I, you know, I am um, your give back. I don't owe anybody anything. I don't, I hate that term, give back. Like I took something. No, I've been blessed. I want to be a responsible steward for the blessings I've been given. I don't feel any better about what I do in Haiti. I don't feel any worse. I want to be that responsible steward. So your podcast, uh, go big to give big. It really, you really should think about reversing the letters, the words, give big to go big. Right. It's because when when God realizes you're a responsible steward for the blessings you've been given, what happens to your territory? I became a responsible steward for those blessings, and 
I, I stopped doing hundred thousand dollar houses. I, you know, my, my, the designs we came up with, everything that exploded in my life was because, yeah, I will give God credit, of course, but but I had a purpose for my passion. Everybody throws their own passion like a rag doll. I can have passion for chocolate. It's not good for me. <laughs> but the purpose, yeah. having an otherworldly burning purpose for your passion, that's what aspiration is all about. That's what philanthropic capitalism is all about. And that's why we continue after 21 years to do what we're doing in the port. Why Haiti? Because I'm a linear thinker. I'm a simpleton. I'm a 1.8 GPA. Haiti's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. That's why we should be there. That's beautiful, man. Uh, I love so much of that. So walk me through the timeline here, because so many people are going to say, well, yeah, it's easy to start building these houses in Haiti when you're selling houses for $50 million and must be nice to have that kind of money just to throw away over to uh, other areas. Walk me through the timeline of when you started realizing that you wanted to make a bigger impact and have a bigger purpose in comparison to where you were in your flipping business when you started doing the work. Listen, time, talent, and treasure. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because most people under their breath will say it's good for him. He's rich. He can do this stuff. Before I had a dime, man, I was sharing my talent by serving meals to the homeless out of the back of a beat-up Line 40, Line van, where the, the spare tire storage area was so rusted, the spare tire was falling out. So we were serving meals one at a time to the homeless coming out from underneath the girders on I-95. That helped me understand there was such a thing as a spiritual highest calling. Most people your age and your demo are solely focused on their professional highest calling, and that's fine. Like, I kind of had to find that first. If I found the spiritual first, I might have been a priest. But I found this, this, the professional first, and then I realized, okay, I can, and this is, the, this is by the help of my mentor, by the way. You can only eat so much food, Frank. You can only wear so, much so many clothes, Frank. You can only have so many cars in the garage, Frank. You can only have, in his case, so many planes in the, you know, in the hangar or sports teams. He owned the Orlando Magic. You only have so many of those things. You, God blesses you materially so you can help those who will likely not succeed at your level. There's, you, know, you can only consume so much. I did not want to turn into a consumeristic, materialistic, egotistic jerk because I'd made a bunch of money. And I had a daughter that I wanted to impress the same thing upon. My daughter's 25 years old. Like she's been to Haiti since she was four years old. I wanted, she could have been brought up so spoiled because we, yeah, we've done, we've done well, but going big has resulted in big successes. That's a whole other podcast on how to exercise your risk tolerance. But then what's it all for? I know for a fact, I think I'm jumping ahead to maybe one of the questions at the end. Money provides two things in an abundance. All you can imagine Relief and comfort. Go ahead. Think about it. How much relief could you use for your problems? How much comfort could you enjoy if you had all that money? Let your mind run wild and use your, your aspirations to, to fulfill that dream. But notice what's missing, man. It's I've been there. I was the one who's going to jump off the bridge because I had all the relief and comfort and accolades, but I had not an ounce of soul in my heart. Because I became a consumerist and a materialist and an egotist. Yeah. That's, that, that's kind of a personal story. Yeah. But I guarantee you, you know, a lot of people who understand it, if I can succeed in the business of real estate, that's meaningless unless I succeed in the business of life. And part of succeeding in the business of life is sharing your blessings with those less fortunate.
That's beautiful. And, and I just love that it's just been in your blood from the beginning. And you had to go through a little bit of the materialistic stage to realize and find who you are and what you want it to be. How did you start incorporating this with some of the other team members in your business? So you're out here flipping houses, but then you're also going to Haiti and doing work. And, and I've found that to be, you know, some people really agree with it and some people really don't agree with it. So how did you start bringing this into your business, including your investors in it? Or who else did you bring around you to make sure that all this came together for you? So we, we have a board of directors that I put together 20 some years ago because I had no idea how to run a charity. I consulted with other people who ran charities that I was really impressed with and said, how do you do this? And they said, surround yourself with people who know how to run a charity better than you. So I've had some people on my board for 20 years. When, we, when you say we go to Haiti and, and work, because the unemployment in Haiti is over 80% in, in most of the rural areas that we're working, I export no materials to ha Haiti, nor do I bring volunteers. People say, oh, I can't donate, Frank, but I could go and I can help you build houses. Well, first of all, you go to my donate page, you can buy a chicken for $4.75. So give up a Starbucks, you can donate. Second of all, if I take you as a, a volunteer, I just took a job away from somebody in an 80% unemployment rate situation. So that, the other part of philanthrocapitalism is we don't export goodwill. You know, like feeling, taking people over there so they can feel good about themselves because they hit a few nails with a hammer. No, we use all local labor, all local materials. And so when it comes to my investors, no. I mean, we started at the Caring House Project Foundation. And because I had the good fortune of running eight books in six different genres, and I, I'm asked to talk all over the world, uh, it's in lieu of appearance fees or, or you know, uh, speaking fees. I have the host say, look, I want you to make a donation to Caring House. Uh, and it's usually representative of maybe two, two or three houses. And then at the end, I want you to allow me to do a call to the heart. In other words, if I'm in a room of real estate people, which I typically am, and there's 250 people there, how many people in this room can help me build a house in Haiti? You know, a lot of, five, five grand for, for a whole house. A lot of people have that kind of money. That's how we funded that. And then in, in, from 2007 to 2018, if we got 50 people raising their hand at 5,000 apiece, that's 250, we would take all 50 of those people to Haiti on one flight, we'd like take a dump airline, one flight. So not so they, we could, you know, be accountable for their money, but I wanted them to see the before picture, right? The after picture, because that's where I could move them from rich to enriched. It wasn't about, again, hugging on orphans. It's so they could see the power of just giving what, what to many people is a lot, five grand's a lot. But when you know you can build a whole house, a concrete house for a family of eight, so, so my, my team, the people that work, I'm an enlightened absolutist, basically a benevolent dictator. I'm the one taking the risk. I'm not, it's, it's not a family thing. Like I have a family. I don't have an open door policy. I, I, you're, 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 I'm sorry to say, you're not part of the family. You will be very well paid. You will get your bonuses. You'll never miss a paycheck. It will be super exciting to work here. But I, you decide whether or not you want to buy into the philanthrocapitalism thing. That's a side thing for my business. Right. And if you do, great. And most most people, you know, most people do. If they don't, they're great at what they do on my job. I don't care. I'm not there to evangelize anybody, man. I'm not. I just say, if if Jesus were here with purple hair and a purple shirt and drive around in a Yugo, which is the car I drive, how would he act? How would he act towards the, you know, the, the people in Haiti? You, you, I'm just you're simply using resources yep. to ease the burden in a very business-like way, 350 grand for a whole village is, I mean, 
That's that's the average cost of one house in Palm Beach County. And we, yet we're building 50 plus all the other stuff. So that's a kind of long-winded answer to your short question. <laughs> you know, I, I'm letting you go on these rants because I just love them. It's just, it's like just listening to gospel right now. It's absolutely uh, everything that I thought you'd deliver. And I'm very excited about it. You mentioned the words from rich to enriched. And I know that comes from your book, uh, Aspire, and, and you've written a lot of books. Um, I would love for you to say, where did that philosophy come from? Because when I read that, I was like, oh, that kind of that hits the soul as soon as you read it, right? You're like, that instantly flips a switch in your head to think completely differently. So where did that come from? And plug your book for a few minutes on on what any of your books that have uh, got you to this point. So we, we're talking, you don't mind, I'm going to hold it up for a second. The Aspire book, maybe the show notes down there. Aspire. So subtitle, how to create your own reality and alter your DNA. This is a mind, this is the first mindset book I've written. It's pretty long. So we're 300 pages, five chapters per section, five sections, five sections, 25 chapters. One of the chapters in the final section is titled from rich to enrich or move from rich to enrich. Going back to the title and how that, how this moving from rich to enrich kind of evolved and became one of the most important chapters of that book. Motivation washes off and goes down the drain on the soap at night, people. So if, if I motivated you today, I failed you. Because you'll take a shower and you'll forget everything. Inspiration, like, man, he was inspiring. I, I read an inspirational book or watched an inspirational movie. Like a bad sunburn, it'll wear off. Inspiration wears off. Aspiration will alter your DNA and allow you to create your own reality. In terms of moving from rich, because I'm around wealth. I'm, I'm selling houses to billionaires. I'm speaking at, you know, real estate events where everybody's a wannabe or they're already arrived. So it's all about financial capital and, and having been there and pursued that. And still I pursue that, but I did it before without purpose, Randy. I didn't have the same purpose. I could have retired probably 20 years ago, <laughs> but now if I build a house that has 10 bathrooms in it and I go around to each bathroom personally, into the bathroom where the toilet paper holder is, and I fold the toilet paper to a perfect diamond tip point that I saw them do in the Ritz Carlton Hotel in France. So I literally tore a piece of toilet paper off because the fold was amazing in, in the Ritz in, pa in Paris. Took it back, showed everybody how to do it. I go around and do it. Why would you still be doing that, Frank? That's purpose. Because I know when Mr. Big Buck comes through, and he notices, wow, if he folds the toilet paper like that, he must have done everything else right in the house. I'm going to walk through that house on a Tuesday. I'll be sleeping there on Friday, writing him a big check. That, that whole evolution became a revolution, right? You evolve as you get older and more enlightened. But the revolutionary part says, yes, I want you. Now, this is where you know you be, you, the teacher comes in. You know, I hate the word guru, yet I want... I want people to understand you, you can move from your definition of rich, which will be fleeting. I mean, the only mark many people leave on the world is a little mark they leave on their tombstone to enrich. And that's where you enrich the lives of others. Maybe it's not through philanthropic capitalism. Maybe it's through teaching or something. But that part it is incumbent upon us to be the responsible stewards to do so. And I feel like the reason we took all those people to Haiti back, you know, five years ago and for 11 years straight. I watched it happen. I'm a very sensitive person. I, I, you wouldn't find me shedding a tear you know, at an orphanage, but watching the, the starburst, the supernova event take place in the eyes of somebody who was only rich, and now they understand what enriched means. That's 
that's pretty gratifying. And that's what this, the final section of my book, Aspire, is all about. God, that's a message that so many people could benefit from hearing is, is that exact passage that you just shared right there. And I love so much of it. And, and like I said, we could spend hours probably just talking about that one book and going through it. But uh, I want to make sure we continue to move along here. I'll ask this one first. So you've had some obviously great success in real estate and you've slowly stepped out of that industry. And now you've had uh, some amazing success with the philanthropic capital style and uh, your, your charity. What's next for you? What, is the, what does the future look like? Is it continuing to building stuff in Haiti? Is it to go back into building houses again? Like what's, what's next for Frank in the world? You know, there's a reason that God gave us, I think there's 10 million colors on, on, on the color spectrum in the Crayola crayon box that we used to you know, crayon draw out of. There's been over 200 colors. I love variety. You know, I'm well, tomorrow my hair might be red. I don't know. But I, I, I want to, the, the, the reinvention, um, you know, the, the confidence that you gain through a few successes, you know, maintenance is never a goal. I don't want to maintain my level of success. And that, that definition does change, by the way. So, so we've moved more or less from Florida. We still have a little place in Florida, but we live in North Carolina. Uh, and I am going to colonize the moon. I'm going to, not the moon literally, but a, a little town in North Carolina that reminds me a lot of what my town in Delray Beach that we put on the map. So real estate-wise, we're, we're in the game, just in a different location. Right. I'm very keen on creating something that hadn't existed before. Um, I really, so when we do a uh, when I write a book, Randy, we tour that book. Uh, we do we do massive, you know, national tours. Uh, but we don't do just podcasts and TV stations and bookstores. My books contain a primary common theme message of hope. So what do we do? We go to homeless shelters, soup kitchens, food pantries, juvenile detention centers, abused women's facilities, veterans facilities, treatment facilities, delivering the message of hope to people who have lost everything. And the last thing they're hanging on to, we hope, is a little hope. Yeah. So so as we've, you know, as I write these books, I've got something real exciting coming out. I can't talk about a job for the new year. Uh, stopping in these places, I've met 10,000 and counting homeless people by name over the last 15 years since I've been doing book tours this way. So that, that part, I'm going to continue to broaden that, man, because... One of the knocks on our charity, and, and, and I, don't, I don't care if it's a knock or not, is like, here, why, why are you taking care of so many people in Haiti? Why don't you take care of people here? Yep. Okay, well, 15% of our donors' dollars do stay domestic to, to help with the domestic homeless issues. So if you were a pair of, like a rabbi or a priest, and I got a call from you saying there's a family living in their car, showering on the beach, you know, with one of those community yep. showers, then, then we, we will quickly put you first, last, in security, or we will put you in an emergency hotel. So we, our donors' dollars do stay domestic. And when we do these homeless uh, tours to support my books, each homeless shelter gets a donation from Caring House. So there, there's no strings attached. They just say, yeah, for us to come in, deliver your message of hope. You know, it's a lot of times we're calling these, these places cold. It's a solicitation, but it's a reverse solicitation. Yeah. Let me deliver a message of hope to your 200 homeless people. And we walk out, the, they walk out the door with a lot of hope and you walk out the door with a, me giving you a check. So those are the kind of things that at this stage of my life, there will be other $50 million houses. I have no desire to outdo that. You know, that part of the ego's gone. But uh, those are the things I love doing now. 
Where's Caring House going to go? Is that uh, something you're going to pass down legacy-wise? Is that something that uh, you're going to pass onto a board? What does that look like to continue that mission? Yeah, that's a good question. So my daughter is 25, and she, growing up underneath Caring House, she's been a board member since she was 15. She's now being groomed to take over Caring House. Uh, as I have two villages that have taken an extremely long time to finish because of the unrest in Haiti. I'm not going to go into the yeah. negative situation in Haiti, but it is as bad as it's ever. It's it's as bad as what you ever you've seen on the news in Ukraine and the Gaza Strip, if not sure. worse, because of the atrocities being perpetrated on these innocent people. So we finally found a way to navigate through finishing a village. A village usually takes nine months. The last house, the last village we did took three years. Mark Evans's village, who you've had on your program, yep. took three freaking years because it was just so dangerous. Once I finish with the two villages that we have started, then she will take over. Uh, the day-to-day operation. I'll still be the, the chair of the board, but she'll take over that operation because it's time, you know, it's time for her to take it over. I've done it for 21 years. I'm ready to move on to some other planet. That's amazing. Uh, I love, I love everything you've shared today. And like I said, we could probably chat for another hour or two, but I want to make sure that I respect your time and uh, get you back out to uh, changing the world. So uh, before we jump into our giving round here, I want to give you a second to just brag on yourself about a moment of giving that maybe has inspired you that you can't get out of your brain. You've had so many moments of, of, you know, making impact, but where's one that maybe has inspired you more than the others or still gives you a little bit of goosebumps when you think about it. Okay. So let's, let's define bragging on yourself because most people cringe in inspire. There's a chapter called healthy ego, Hmm. healthy ego. Ego gets a bad rap while self-esteem gets a good rap. Why is that? Healthy ego is the following three things. Having an otherworldly burning passion for your purpose. Check the box. Believing you're one of the best in the world at what you do. Check the box. And not being afraid to tell the world about it. Mm. A lot of people can have an otherworldly burning passion. Maybe be one of the best, but they're afraid to tell the world about it. So I'm not afraid to tell you that one, one of the ongoing highlights for me is what I what my spiritual book's called The Tap. And it's an image from the Sistine Chapel when the finger of God is touching the finger of Adam. I had to pay the Vatican a royalty to remove Adam and put the silhouette of a reader so it looks like God's finger's coming down and tapping you on the shoulder. And I talk about how to recognize life's great tap moments when God comes down, taps you on the shoulder, and you don't say, what the heck is that? And, and how to recognize it and how to act on it. I'm, I'm now, as I'm getting older, I'm focusing on, on, on smaller tap moments. I'm going to give you a couple exercises that, that do still give me goosebumps. Next time you travel, you know, invisible people you can't see. I'm going to tell you an invisible class of people you, you will not notice unless I ask you to. The custodians in the airport. When was the last time you noticed a custodian in the airport? Everywhere I go, whenever I travel. I seek them out. At first, I watch them. I observe them do their job. And then I come up, look at their Fernando, their name on their little name tag. Fernando is a guy I know in, in Asheville. And I tell him what a good job he's doing. And I give him a few bucks. I did, and I just sit and talk to him for a little while. I go to, if I just happen to stop at a Denny's, short order cook, I walk back in the kitchen. And I tell him how great that Grand Slam breakfast that I had was and give him a $20 bill. Every hotel I stay in, I take this, the free stationery. Thanks for the cleanest room I've ever stayed in. $10 bill, copy of one of my books. Everywhere I go, these little tap moments every single day, I'm looking for the invisible 
the downtrodden, the forgotten, the oppressed. That that it, now listen, you can't tell me that he only does that because he's rich. You can have not two nickels to rub together, like the woman who put two mites into the collection basket, gave everything she had. If that's all you have, when I meet these ten thousand homeless people, Randy, um, yes, we carry around gift cards and cash and all that. They just want to be recognized. And by the way, of the 10,000, let's use as a nice round number, about 70% are lucid, educated, not talking to the light post, not strung out on drugs. And if they are strung out on drugs, it's because they were homeless. It wasn't the drugs that caused them to be homeless. Anyway, those small little tap moments of, of giving are, are what I seek out every day and give thanks to God for allowing me to be aware enough of them. That's so beautiful. It's um, it's always mind blowing to me the stories that I get from people on that question, and it's it's honestly such little things that people do that give them the greatest gifts. You know, you've you've changed little villages in Haiti, and and some of the favorite moments that you like to share about are these minute little taps that you get. And I've had some of those where I came out of a restaurant at Christmas time, and I had some leftover food, and there's a homeless guy sitting there, and it pouring rain sitting there. And I was like, you know what? I want to experience what this guy experiences. And I sat down with him for two hours and he ate the food and we just chatted. And like you said, great human went through a divorce. Wife took him for something, something happened. Next thing you know, he ended up doing drugs once or twice. And next thing you know, he's on the street and he just absolutely hates himself and doesn't know how to go back and face his family because he's so embarrassed by how he got here. And you're like, yeah. man, you just, you just, you learn so much about people instead of writing checks and going out and sitting with them on the street and hearing their stories and having a whole new compassion for human when you do that kind of stuff. And, and Randy, if more people did that, it's scary. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's yeah. scary to approach a homeless person, especially if you're a woman, it's even scarier. Yeah. But, but if you just, you know, next time you see them at a stoplight and they've got a little, little sign, I mean, I've been there, I've done that. Listen, I swap places with homeless people in, in 20 cities. On my prior three book, to, book book tours ago, I slept under bridges. I slept in parks while I put them in a hotel in our tour bus. So, you know, put walk that mile in their shoes without judgment. Once you remove judgment, the fear of interacting with somebody who's downtrodden or homeless is almost removed. And you're going to be on your guard. I mean, some of these people are a little bit out of their mind. And, you, and I've been accosted. I've been attacked. But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way. But I'm going to go about what you did with that leftovers without judgment. Absolutely. That's amazing, Frank. Well, I'm excited to jump into a bit of our giving round here. It's just some rapid fire questions, quick answers. Are you ready for them? Let's go. What would get you more excited, donating a million dollars or spending a week physically doing the work? And that, those are my only two choices. Yeah. I, I would say, I would say, I'm going to say neither first, but if I have to pick those two, being a philanthropic capitalist and knowing what an ROD looks like, boy, could I stretch? I mean, a, a million dollars builds three villages for fifteen hundred kids and their families. Got so be. that's that's that answer. That's perfect. Uh, who inspires you with their giving? And by the way, when I asked this question on two other podcasts, Mark Evans DM mentioned you, and I believe another guy, uh, Ben Humble, mentioned you as well. So you're an honorary mention in this category already. My mentor. Rich DeVos, who was, when he passed away a couple of years ago, the 65th richest person in the world. Again, not, not impressing upon you or pressing you. I'm just impressing upon you that that's the man who taught me how to find my spiritual highest calling. I don't know how many multiple billions he had, 
yet I never met somebody more grounded. I never met somebody more charitable, more giving, more philanthropic, more kind. He's the man. He used to take me to the Orlando Magic Games because he owned the team. He would know, and, and he had a private elevator to go up to his private suite. He would know the name of the attendant in the elevator, how many children he had, what grades they were in, and what you know ailment or cold they had a week ago. He was so kind, and he taught me how to recognize the invisible. So Rich DeVos, any book written by Rich DeVos, I strongly encourage you to get. My favorite is Hope from My Heart. And then his last book right before he died was Simply Rich. It was called a great title. He was my mentor, and he still is post-mortem. Absolutely amazing. I love that. And I love that it's like the the principles he instilled in you are the things that are inspiring you the most today of what you shared on the podcast of just seeing the invisible. So that's amazing. Um, do you think companies should start giving from the very beginning of their business or after they've had some success in money and got past the startup stage? Okay, so let's get companies out of it. Let's go with individuals. Company, yep. you are not Apple. You are not Coke. You're not Kleenex. You are Randy. I am Frank. You need to be the megaphone, the human megaphone. You need to be the, the ringmaster. You need to be the probable partner. And, and, and a part of that, you know, letting people know, there are 50,000 people in the world that can afford what I do for a living out of 8 billion. So I am really good at being the human megaphone. Do not, I encourage you, or I should say, discourage you from using giving as a way to build your brand. It's just trading, man. There's no altruism whatsoever. It's just trading one for the other. You know, again, I'm, what, what, you got to go back to the Bible. Don't let your right hand know what the left hand's doing. Yeah. I mean, I never, ever did that to build my brand. I did that to build my soul. Mm. So for those individuals, forget companies, because companies are owned by individuals or somebody calling the shots, start with the time, then move to the talent, and then share the treasure. And if you want to be the leader and you are the leader of that company, or you're in a, I don't know, a focus group or a mastermind or what have you, be the one to bring it up. You know, where do I go? Don't, don't just start with serving Christmas meal at the homeless shelter or donating $10 to somebody's GoFundMe campaign. You're not going to change the world by doing that. It's, got, it's like a muscle. It's your philanthropic muscle, philanthropic capitalist muscle. You've got to exercise it. So, you know, don't, you don't have to wait a, a second for that person who makes the decision. And if even you're not the owner, founder, or CEO, step up and tell the owner, founder, or CEO that we should be sharing our blessings in, in the form of time and then propose something. No leader wants to hear a problem without a solution. Yeah. Like when I, when I was really praying with a lot of our projects, the way you communicated with me, if you couldn't say it in the subject line of an email, I don't want to hear about it. And I don't, don't even put it in the body of the email. And if you're walking in with a problem, you better have a solution represented before the problems even even tendered to me. Yeah. Anyway, that's a tangent. So next. No, I, I I loved that. And did you know there's a stat? And I don't know, stats are all just stats and numbers, but a stat out there that said 93% of employees are happier with their organizations if they volunteer. So by starting with your time and volunteering, it's around the whole concept that you create a family around your family, right? When we go out and serve together, we want to stay together. And so there's a huge statistic around that. So I just believe everything that you just shared. That's, that's a great thing. And if it's not happening to your company, propose it. No matter yeah. what, where you are, you can be a custodian, propose it. What was the first thing you thought of when you heard of Go Big to Give Big? 
I didn't like the, the order of your words. <laughs> I wanted you to reverse them. Get big to go big, man. That's when everything explodes for almost everybody who I am, I aspire to be or who inspires me. They understand that you've got to give big to go big. And, and that's that's the first thing. So once I got past that, and I said, that's the name of your program. It's not my program. The fact that at least you reference that, you don't have to even go big to give big, but you don't even, you can go really small and still give big. It's, it's just that little, you know, it's the little stuff I talked about. You know, when you leave in the $10 bill in the hotel you stay at or going to the short order cook and giving them a $5 bill or somebody in the airport, you, you can go tiny and give big because I get that guy, his name's Fernando. He sees me in the airport you know, amongst thousands of other people, the smile on his face when he sees me, it's not like I'm giving him a bunch of money. Just we sit and talk. That's going big and giving big. Absolutely love that. Just beautiful the way you phrase that. So uh, in one word, describe the feeling you get when you serve. Responsible. Mm, I love that one. And the final question we got for you today, Frank, is do you believe that money can buy you happiness? I just said that's remember I jumped ahead of you. I know, I know you did. Now you can elaborate. You can elaborate here for a minute. Let's repeat it because I've had so for those of you who are aspiring to be rich and, and have a you know a garage full of cars and a closet full of clothes and a pantry full of food, money will provide all the relief and comfort you can imagine. My therapist says I'm addicted to excitement, right? Mm -hmm. So it can be there's a whole other podcast, but taking taking a destructive tendency that I used to have, getting arrested and stealing cars and all that, I never changed. I'm still the same person. I just redirected something that was destructive into something constructive. Money can buy thrills and excitement, but thrills and excitement are thrills and excitement. They're not happiness. There's a big difference, and we mistake the two. We absolutely, because we're all ADD, well, we're all AD. We all have attention deficit. It might not be a disorder, but we all have AD. So we're constantly seeking the next thrill or excitement. We mistake that for happiness. The thrill and the excitement wears off, just like the shot of heroin in your veins, and we're off seeking the next shot of heroin. No, the, the, it, it cannot. Providing re relief and cover for you in abundance, yes. But using it as a responsible steward through philanthropic capitalism, that, if you want to call it buying, can buy you happiness. That's it, man. That is the whole principle of that question is changing that framework of how do we use money in one way? And then how do we flip that script? Like you talk about from going from being rich to enriched is how do you go from spending money that or making money is going to make you happy to how you spending it is making you happy by doing the right things with it. Cause that will drive your happiness, not how much of it. And I say that by saying, Frank, if I put Exactly what you said. If I put a million dollars in your bank account tomorrow, you might feel more secure and you might feel a little bit of a relief, but it's not going to make you a happier human. But if you took that million dollars and you went and served with it and you had nothing left, you'd probably be the happiest person in the world. And then you go back to being in that insecure state again. And so that's how we believe in that. So I just loved everything you shared is, is aligned with what we believe in that question. Nothing outside of you. No, nothing your religion has ever told you, your gurus have ever told you can bring you one moment of happiness. Nothing outside of you. It's it's the being that responsible steward for those blessings and whatever you choose to do with them for the less fortunate will cause the sensation of joy. It's not you kind of skip over happiness and you land on joy when you're doing that kind of thing. 
So, so even, you know, you don't want to seek out giving as a way to be happy because that's, you're seeking an external source, the internal source of true happiness. And this, I should sit like on a purple (laughs) pillow across my arms, like a Lotus Yogi. True happiness is uncaused. It's very elusive to find, but that, as far as me in the many years I've been on the earth, that's where I find when, when I see that person in the, you know, the airport and I'm able to interact with them, that is an uncaused sensation of joy. That's beautiful, Frank. Well, I've, I've loved every second of this. Like I said, it's even rare for me on a podcast to get to spend so much time preaching about the ability for us to have a bigger impact on the world. So if people are listening to this and they want to get your books or learn more about you or find out what you're going to be dropping in the new year, where's the best place for them to go to learn more about you? Best thing to do, either Google me and it'll take you to my website. Yeah. If you don't want to Google me, it's more Frank, first name Frank, hyphen McKinney.com. That domain, that website has been deemed or called Disney on a desktop by PC Magazine because you can tour the villages in Haiti. You can tour through a $50 million mansion or $20 million mansion. You can read sample chapters, listen to sample chapters, read reviews. You name it. It all happens at frank-mckinney.com. If you want to buy books from us, great. I autograph them, send them to you. Our, our carrying house makes a little bit more money. You want to buy them from Amazon? We still do well because we we actually have our own imprinted label now. We I own all the publishing rights to my books. So go to frank-mckinney.com. You can see what's coming up. You can take the tours of the houses. You can go to Haiti virtually and, uh, and, and, and enjoy that Disney on the desktop. I absolutely love it. Well, thank you so much, Frank. I've appreciated you coming in and uh, continue to inspire us to go bigger so we can give bigger. All right. Hey, great conversation, Randy. You're a fantastic host. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you know someone who's an example of go big to get big, we would love if you could share this with them. We want to get our message out to as many listeners as we can. And it all starts by having people like you share it with your friends. Also, if you enjoyed the show, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star review. It's a simple act of giving that is free for you, helps us grow our message, and in return, allows others to find us sooner. And until the next episode, remember, always go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can give bigger with your profit.